0: Well, after last week's incredible performance, I mean sermon, of course, by my good friend, uh, my annoying friend, I should say, Joel Reedy. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday morning, you want to go back and check the tape, as we might say, Uh, Psalm 91, Joel preached on last week, without a stitch of notes, I will have you know. Well, in light of that, I decided to change up this week, and I'm going to preach Psalm 117, all two verses of it, and 28 words. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. How do you like that, Joel Reedy? (laughs) That's all I got. Now, Now back to my script. All kidding aside, all kidding aside, I think I can speak for everyone here at Trinity when I say to you, Joel, as well as to your precious wife, Lena, and your two amazing little boys, Ezra and Simon, how much we love you. And how grateful we are that God has brought you to be a part of our church family. Joel's not the only good gift to this church, friends. I mean this as your pastor with all sincerity. There's not a week that goes by that I don't stop and consider how amazing God has been to this church. We have blessing after blessing. Good gift from the Heavenly Father after good gift. We are rich with phenomenal teachers, as well as many, many faithful servants. And if you never get close to the platform, may you never fear that you're not noticed because your Father in heaven notices you, and so many of your brothers and sisters notice you too. We are blessed. Amen? Amen. Well, today's Saul might not be the shortest... Psalm 117 is the shortest. It's even the shortest chapter in the entire Bible, if you didn't know that. But today's psalm is undoubtedly one of the most significant, even one of the most consequential of all the psalms in the Bible, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the great messianic psalm. There are other royal or messianic psalms, to be sure. In fact, several of them come immediately to mind. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 45, the, the, the theme of the great kingship of Christ. My pen overflows with a glorious theme. Even Psalm 72, that great psalm of Solomon, David's son. But none of these, in my humble estimation, rival the 110th, Psalm 110, in terms of their Christological significance and contribution to our understanding of both the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 110, friend, is the high watermark of Old Testament revelation concerning the nature and the character of God's promised Messiah. Now, understand that there are as many as 27 direct quotations, allusions, and references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. That is the most by far. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently quoted verse in the entire New Testament. We find them in each of the four gospel accounts. We find them by Luke's pen in the book of Acts. We find these words alluded to in Paul and in Peter's first epistle. And of course, we find many direct references, even that we'll see this morning, from the book of Hebrews, which, by the way, the book of Hebrews, some allege, may have been an early Christian exposition or sermon on Psalm 110. I think it might have been. There are hyperlinks literally everywhere to this messianic text throughout the New Testament. That's why we selected it for this summer in the Psalms date. For example, evidently our Lord Jesus Christ himself was personally meditating. And just think about this for a moment. Of all that Jesus could have thought about, Jesus was meditating upon this particular Davidic poem at key points in his final week of ministry leading up to his crucifixion that Good Friday. How do we know that? Well, the gospel writer records two important instances at the very least where Jesus himself quotes or alludes to Psalm 110 there in his final days in and around Jerusalem. The first is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. And on that intense Tuesday of teaching and controversy, that morning alteration, altercation between Jesus and that crowd of Pharisees who wanted him dead, Matthew 22, verse 41 says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, who do you think or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. They knew their Bibles. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? That's the word Adonai that you and I know well. It's a term that means master. It's a term of endearment or respect or honor that a lesser figure would give to or speak when referring to a superior. Verse 44 saying, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, Jesus says, how is he his son? You see, in ancient times, fathers or older persons were always considered to be superior or greater than their sons were. And so how is it then that the great or mighty King David calls this individual mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 1 his Lord? Verse 46 of Matthew 22, and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now the other notable instance where Psalm 110 pops up is at the very end of Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus is there on trial before the famed and ruthless high priest Caiaphas. You'll recall there that a few fraudulent false witnesses had been gathered at this messianic mock trial. The religious establishment had simply had their fill of Jesus and they were intent on putting him to death finally and ultimately, or so they thought. Well, eventually a pair of conspirators stepped forward and said in verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, Matthew then tells us that the high priest pressed Jesus for a defense of this baseless accusation. Caiaphas then exploded when Jesus was silent. In verse 63 of Matthew 26, we read this, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. To which Jesus finally responds, combining Psalm 110 with Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Notice Caiaphas did not miss the connection. He knew exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ was claiming to be. He was claiming to be nothing less than the the Psalm 110 King. So let me ask you here this morning a question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is this man, Jesus, really? Where did he come from and what are his titles? What exactly does his death and resurrection mean for this world? And why, friend, do you need today, more than anything else that that you need today, you need to do business with this king, this priest, and this judge. Listen, Psalm 110 provides the ultimate answer to these eternally significant questions this morning. In this psalm, we have an ancient Davidic prophecy about a coming king, priest and judge who by his one time sacrifice and glorious resurrection just three days later proves that he is trustworthy that he is able to rescue and redeem his own faithful ones and further that he is terrible in his judgments against those who insist on opposing him you can either rage against him or you can receive him but you must deal with him this morning. As one Bible commentator has said, the choice for every man is quite simple. Being crushed beneath his feet or being exalted to sit with him on his throne. He that overcometh, Revelation three twenty one says, to him will I give to sit with me on my throne. Even as I also overcame and I am set down with my father on his throne. Jesus invites us to come sit with him In faith, why then do so many rage against him in rebellion? It is better to sit, Alexander McLaren said, with Jesus on his throne than to become his footstool. So, who is Jesus? Well, again, today, according to Psalm 110, Jesus is three things, three titles, three descriptors this morning. Firstly, Jesus Christ is the risen and ascended Davidic king who is seated in royal and unrivaled power and divine authority, ruling in the midst of his enemies through the power, proclamation, and advancement of his life-giving gospel. That is who we praise and we worship when we praise the name of Jesus. He is a king like no other, and he wields a sword to win his own. Jesus secondly this morning is also the eternally living and ever listening high priest over God's household after the order of Melchizedek who advocates and intercedes for the true Israel of God he is king but he's also a priest in fact he is a priest who never has to be replaced for he lives by the power of an indestructible life and then thirdly and finally Jesus Christ is And you need to understand this if you are outside of faith. He is the imminently returning judge, the coming conqueror who will soon shatter kings on the day of his wrath, executing judgment among the nations who have rejected his wise and gracious rule and his offer of peace. He is king, he is priest, and he is judge. And Psalm 110 shows us each of these things gloriously. He is the priest that we all need. He is the king that we don't deserve. And he is the judge that we don't want to face one day. When all accounts in heaven and on earth are settled. So firstly this morning, notice with me from verses 1 through 3 of our text. Psalm 110 that Jesus Christ, friend, is the promised Davidic king. Who is right now seated... And who is presently reigning spiritually over and in the church in his resurrected glory. I want you to bear in mind that King David overheard this divine conversation and promise about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. We don't know when David wrote this particular poem, nor for what occasion it was written. But we do know of whom it was written. It was written about God's Messiah. Again, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Psalm 110 is the quintessential messianic psalm. The quintessential messianic psalm. In other words, it is entirely prophetic, future looking. It is a piece of Hebrew poetry pointing ahead to a coming Davidic descendant who would eventually sit in authority over God's royal kingdom forever and ever subduing all rebel powers forever and finally. Now in terms of a structure for this particular psalm, notice that verses 1 through 3 comprise the first of two oracles giving us really a two, or at best a three-part outline for this great psalm. I'm choosing to share this message in a three-part outline. Though there really could be an argument that there are two halves, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. Let's again listen right here to verses 1, 2, and 3. Notice how David begins, The Lord, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the Lord says to my Lord, Adonai, Master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You need to understand there are three persons referred to here. There is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Then there is the personal pronoun my that is david himself yahweh says to me my lord that's the third person in this particular verse david's lord yahweh says to david's adonai sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool verse 2 the lord sends forth from zion zion of course is the city of kings a reference to jerusalem send forth from zion your mighty scepter and this is a peculiar phrase rule in the midst of your enemies rule in the midst of your enemies enemies what's that about and then finally verse 3 your people will offer themselves freely i prefer the translation which says your people will volunteer as a good tennessee boy should your people would volunteer will volunteer on the day of your power in holy garments From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Again, a very uh, mysterious expression in the original language. Now listen, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a text you need to earmark and note and file away in your mind, God had previously and emphatically promised to David that his house, his dynasty david's royal family line would be established forever he would never lack a descendant to sit on the throne of israel we read in that memorable passage 2nd samuel 7 verse 13 and 14 he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son In verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, David, before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here, of course, is where we find the Davidic covenant. God's promise of a king in David's royal line. 2 Samuel 7, again, is one of those passages you need to be familiar with as you study God's word. Those who lived in David's own day, again about a thousand years before the time of Christ, and even perhaps during the expansive and impressive rule of David's son Solomon, even after David's death, would certainly have had reason to believe God was going to be true to his promise. They would have seen clearly with their own eyes God's great blessing upon the nation of Israel, and the establishment and the continuance of David's royal line in david's day and solomon's day there was no kingdom that rivaled theirs but what about generations later what about hundreds of years later say in the first century about a millennia after david had originally penned these words what about those who would have sung psalm 110 during the time of the exile Or perhaps as a part of that returning group of refugees to Jerusalem, languishing long under Greek and Roman rule, is God still faithful in their day? What about these enemies, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, O God? When would this mysterious ruler, David's even Lord, sit in power over them? Well, listen, this is where later revelation, and even the progress of revelation, I help, I think helps to break the code. It helps to unlock the mystery. Even we might say it helps to give us the precise identity as to who David's Lord truly is. Who is the Psalm 110 king? Now, invite me to turn, invite, uh, let me invite you to turn with me in Acts, to Acts chapter 2, and to Peter's famous Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2. Time does not allow us to look at all 27 allusions or key references to Psalm 110 that are found in the New Testament, but I think Acts 2 certainly should get our attention this morning, for it is essential to having a right understanding concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, specifically as David's promised descendant. Why else? It's the first Christian sermon of all time. You think it would have something important to say. Acts 2 verse 29. Listen to what Peter proclaims. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter wraps up, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter understood it, but not really until the presence and power of the coming of God's own Spirit. Peter understood by the enabling and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that Psalm 110 is where David predicted, David even prophesied the resurrection, the ascension, and the present heavenly session from the Latin word sessio, which means to sit. Of Christ. The divine dialogue of Psalm 110, verse 1, concerning God's promise to honor this messianic king and to grant him great victory and power over his enemies made absolutely no sense until the coming, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They knew it, but they did not understand it. People must have puzzled over this passage for centuries, until the arrival of Christ's promised Spirit. I want you to notice this phrase, sitting at God's right hand, in verse 1. It is not so much a picture of inactivity. We might use it in our language today, You, you sit around, but no, it's not a picture of inactivity, but rather it's a picture of authority, a picture of authority, because kings rule from thrones. Kings rule from thrones, they sit in authority, therefore this is a poetic expression of dominion and dignity and even honor for this messianic figure. The expression also to make one's enemies your footstool, scholars have noted, was an ancient Middle Eastern idiom or metaphor meaning to take absolute power and authority over one's enemies. In fact, some scholars have suggested that at times a conquering king would humiliate his defeated counterpart by placing his heel on the neck of that enemy king. This is an image I think certainly we would see embedded in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent would strike the heel of Christ but he would crush the serpent's head And it's also embedded in Psalm 110, which finds an echo just two decades after Jesus' own resurrection in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 26. Here we read these words, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. death over and over again jesus christ the resurrected king of glory is portrayed as sitting in divine authority having completed his work of redemption by his death and resurrection from the grave he's a different kind of king over a different kind of kingdom for instance in hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 we read these words Notice, after making purification for sins, here's the allusion to Psalm 110, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We'll return to Hebrews in just a few moments under our second point, but notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 18 as he prays for the church to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, notice that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and here's the reference again, and seated him at his right hand. In heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We could go to Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2. We could go to First Peter 3 verse 22. We could go to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 or chapter 10 verse 12 because all of these verses, friend, point to the Christian gospel as containing the announcement of God's victory over sin, over Satan, over death and hell through the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ as the precise fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus Christ then is The ruling Davidic king who reigns spiritually today over the hearts of those who freely love him. Do you love him? You see, Jesus is taking the world life after life, not by force, but by faith. That's what the gospel is all about. Through the ministry of prayer and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, he now rules in the midst of his enemies. What were you and what was I before grace stepped in and changed us? We were enemies against God. By faith in Christ's resurrection power, we as Jesus' people and subjects can now present our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is our spiritual act of worship romans 12 verses 1 and 2 by grace we are being made right now new creations new creation 2nd corinthians 5 verse 17 right now we have put on christ's royal robes of righteousness colossians 3 verse 12 and we Colossians 3, 1 and 2, have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, as well as Ephesians 2, verse 6, referring to that. Somebody has put it this way, it is the beauty of holiness in the lives of Christ's followers that attracts and that conquers his enemies. One of the songs that we sing from time to time is actually an old Puritan prayer set to modern music. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. Today, what should be our response and our reaction to this glorious and gracious revelation that Jesus Christ is the risen King? What does Christ's resurrection rule and power mean for your life and mine right now? It means, firstly, that we can and we must worship Him exclusively. It means that we are to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead and knowing such Truth, we will be saved. It means likewise that we are to welcome his leadership as we welcome his word to rule over our hearts and we are to obey his commands. Worship, belief, obedience, and it also means that we are to share this glorious good news with other people around us. Jesus Christ, make no mistake, is the king that we don't deserve. He is the king that God's promise in Psalm 110 demands. Well, secondly, let's look at the second point this morning. Jesus Christ not only is king, he is also the eternally living and faithful high priest over God's household who prays and provides forgiveness for God's own people. You know, in one sense, I think it's fair to say that a king represents God to man, but a priest is someone who represents man to God. I think that's a helpful way of distinguishing the two. The second half of Psalm 110 starts with a second oracle. This time an important oath that stunningly announces Yahweh's promise that this Davidic king will likewise serve as a priest forever over God's household after the order of Melchizedek. Now for many in the room this morning that might not seem strange, but for a biblical person a jewish person that would have been utterly foreign and strange for the jews by the time of jesus's day there had been plenty of kings and there had been plenty of priests but there had never really been both offices fully vested in one person god's messiah we are told here uniquely would be an eternal priest king Aside from a few select scenes in King King David's own life, the crown in Israel was kept quite distinct from the ephod. That is, the priesthood and the kingship was kept totally separate. Why? Well, I think it was due to the corruptibility of human nature. Too much power, too much influence for one fallen person to wield. Now, interestingly, there is one infamous episode from the life of King Uzziah that we read of in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In that particular episode, the lines of king and priest are crossed tragically. We read in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, but when King Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord, who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah, and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense." Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Well, we are told then that Uzziah went out angry, and the leprosy then just broke out upon his forehead in the presence of the priests of Israel. The chronicler then notes that King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26 verse 21. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But notice that Jesus, friend, is a priest king of a completely different stripe. That is, God swore an oath that Christ would be an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think it's fair to Assume that it's common knowledge that the Aaronic, not the Ironic, but the Aaronic priesthood, Israel's religious priesthood, started with Moses' older brother by the name of Aaron, and was passed down through his descendants through the lineage of the tribe of Levi. It's why we call it the Levitical priesthood. However, David was from what tribe? He was from the tribe of Judah, the royal or kingly line. Well, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be uniquely a kingly priest or a priestly king. That is, he was to represent God to man as king and lord, and he was to represent man to God as priest and advocate forever after the order of Melchizedek. But what on earth does that mean? (laughs) Well, look, to answer this mysterious question a bit briefly this morning. We have to, in a sense, look back, and we have to look ahead. We have to look back to Genesis 14, and we have to look ahead to Hebrews chapter 7 in particular. See, the mysterious figure named Melchizedek, even the name Melchizedek shows us something about him, that name means king of righteousness, you'll note, who was ironically enough the king of Salem, the king of peace or Jerusalem later on, this enigmatic figure shows up only three times in the entire Bible. The first, of course, is when Abraham encounters him in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. The second is right here in Psalm 110, verse 4. And then the third are several occurrences or references in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 alone. Well, Melchizedek... The ancient king of Salem whom Abraham met and offered a tithe to, we understand then, was a type or a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived about 500 years before David, and he lived about 1,500 years before the time of Christ. Now, I think the easiest way to explain the connection between Melchizedek and the Messiah is to let the writer of the book of Hebrews explain it himself. As previously stated, it is possible, I think even quite likely, that all of Hebrews was actually an exposition on Psalm 110. But it is virtually a certainty that all of Hebrews 7 is an explanation or an inspired commentary on the, on the verse, Psalm 110 verse 4. Consider with me how the writer of Hebrews painstakingly develops his case for the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the Aaronic priesthood throughout the book. And we'll just look quickly at a few uh, passages. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. The writer states here, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But now this reference leaves open the possibility of Jesus coming as a Levitical priest. Notice Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 next. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. Notice here that Jesus is not a priest by right of his birth, his Levitical ancestry, but rather he was appointed a special priest before Almighty God. Hebrews 4 next. Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16, a passage that many of us have, uh, are well acquainted with. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, we learn here that he is a sinless Priest. All the other priests had to provide sacrifices to cover their own sin, but not this priest. Then beginning with Hebrews chapter 5, the writer really starts to home in on how Jesus is uniquely a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Notice Hebrews 5 verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but He was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, here's a reference to Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest by virtue of his suffering. Look, Hebrews chapter 7 is essentially a rehearsal of that conversation and encounter of Genesis chapter 14 between Abraham and Melchizedek. And listen, all of this was to show that Jesus Christ, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is superior, it's better than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is greater. He is greater in that he is both priest and king, as we have noted already, The Levitical priests were prohibited from being a priest and a king. And further, Jesus is superior because he is an eternal priest. What's the problem with a priest, even a good priest? The problem is he dies eventually. But Jesus' priesthood is indestructible by virtue of his resurrected life. Look with me finally here at Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 verse 15 and following. The writer says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect but on the other on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God verse 22 this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So who is Jesus? He is the king that we don't deserve and secondly this morning according to Psalm 110 verse 4 and virtually the entire book of Hebrews by the way he is the priest that we don't deserve but we all desperately need. Jesus we might say is the compassionate conqueror. He is the perfect king priest who has defeated death by his own death and now lives gloriously and powerfully to tell about it. He represents God to man as king, and he represents man to God as priest, perfectly, compassionately, and eternally. So how should you respond? Well, you should draw near to this priest. You should draw near and hold fast to your confession with the sympathetic and faithful high priest. Well, let's look quickly and finally here, just a few more moments together at the third and culminating point. Jesus is the king. He is a priest. But thirdly, Jesus is the coming conqueror and the judge who will execute final judgment upon everyone who stands against him in rebellion. We find this in the last three verses of Psalm 110. According to Psalm 110, God's anointed Messiah is king, priest, and he is the world's ultimate judge. Jesus mercifully rules his subjects of his kingdom with truth and grace. He eternally mediates the mercy and goodness of his salvation via suffering by the power of his resurrected life. But lastly, from this psalm, we see that Jesus warns the world of his end times return to punish all wickedness and to quell every sinful rebellion against his crown. Look at verse 5 with me. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Three portraits of the Messiah. He is the ruler, he is the advocate, and he is the warrior. He is the perfect king, priest, and judge. Notice here at the end that David shifts the prophetic lens from Christ's first advent to his final arrival. Today is the day of salvation and second chances. But that day, Christ's return day, will be a day of great wrath and swift consequences for all who do not believe him. This Messiah King lovingly rules his own. Haven't you felt his loving rule in your life? He listens intently to our prayers. He is that sympathetic and faithful high priest to us. But friend, he will not be lenient with the lost on the last day. These last few verses of Psalm 110 show us Jesus Christ as God's returning warrior king. Riding out to battle to meet his enemies. And I can't help but be carried away to Revelation chapter 19 when I consider these words. Revelation 19 verse 11 and following will bring us to the end of this message. John hears the words of Christ saying, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Simply put, you don't want to be on the menu of that great end times supper of God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you know deep down in your heart That you are lost and separated from the life of God. You do not know the loving leadership of King Jesus. You do not know the listening ear of our sympathetic and faithful high priest. If you know that you, all you have to face right now is a coming judge who will deal decisively and eternally with you. But there's a chance. There's a hope. There's an opportunity right now. And here's what you need to do. You need to throw down your weapons of rebellion. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Throw the weapons down. Fall on your knees and confess King Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And do you know how you will be met? Not with his heat, but with his heart. You will be met with the love and the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment because today is the day of salvation and he will turn none of you away. Come to Christ, come to him, fall down at him. He is a lamb like lion and he is a lion like lamb. He is peaceful to those who seek for peace, but he is powerful to punish those who persist in rebellion against him. Who is Jesus? He is our King. He is our Priest. And for some, sadly, He is the Judge. Don't let that be you. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God, what a psalm. Oh Lord, what a psalm. Even more so, what a Savior. What a Son. Father, we thank You For the beauty and sufficiency, even the clarity of your word. That we get to come together to church on a Sunday morning and and open these ancient texts and see with fresh eyes of faith the beauty and supremacy of King Jesus. To know that our living Lord, he listens to us even right now. But we also confess with boldness, but with compassion to those with unbelieving ears even here this morning or listening online, that Jesus is the judge. He will, not, he will not look the other way on that day. Oh God, if there's even one here this morning, would you by your Holy Spirit move to them because we apart from your Spirit cannot move toward you. Lord, move toward the sinner. Grant a heart of repentance. Save a soul by the work of your son. And let the church celebrate another one in the family. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the matchless name of our King and priest and Savior Jesus. Amen.